Welcome, everyone, to the Persist podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here today with Dr. Paulette Brown-Hines. Dr. Paulette Brown-Hines is the founder of Voice Media Ventures and the second-generation publisher of the Black Voice News. She is the immediate past president of the California News Publishers Association, the first African-American to lead the organization in its over 130-year history. She is the chair of the board of the Inland Empire Community Foundation and sits on the boards of the California Press Foundation, American Press Institute, Cal Matters, and the James Irvine Foundation. As a lifelong student of African-American literature, culture, and history, she leads underground railroad study tours for the Black Voice Foundation, stewards a collection of rare slavery artifacts, and teaches a professional development course at UC Riverside for creatives. She is the founder of Mapping Black California, a community map STEAM initiative, and was recently awarded a Google News Initiative Challenge Innovation Grant to develop a data hub and content sharing platform for the Black press. Paulette, welcome to the show. Thank you, Denise. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Wonderful. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while, so I'm glad that you're here. And as you know, the Persist Women's Political Engagement Conference is entering our fifth year this fall. And one of our main messages is that political engagement is much broader than just running for office or working for an elected official. You are a fantastic example of this as you have extensive experience in policy advocacy and community organizing. Please tell us a bit about yourself and your path into all of this work that influences the political arena. I'll make it a very Cliff's Notes version. Spark Notes? What do you call it now? Yeah. Version of, of how I got in. Well, a lot of it, you know, people know in the community know my family has just been, the Brown family has been a part of inland community since my parents both migrated. My mother, when she was in, I think, middle school and my father after he graduated from high school. But I just grew up in a household that was very engaged in community. So they were involved in, you know, PTA and, uh, you know, campaigns. My father ran for city council and then later was served on the school board for 12 years. My mother, later in life and became an assembly member representing parts of, you know, San Bernardino and Rialto and Montana. And then my brother Hardy, uh, which a lot of people know my younger brother Hardy is an elected county school board member. So we've had politics in our, you know, our life, but we've also just had civic involvement. So uh, the Black Voice News is one of those ways that we've contributed to kind of the, the civic fiber of the community. And My parents took over the paper when I was in middle school. So I kind of grew up with, you know, a kind of advocacy paper with politics and then just strong advocates for education and like, how do we help inform and educate the community? And I think that's where I I ended up kind of landing after finishing a doctorate and thinking I was going to be a professor and leaving the region. But I think we found that politics and running for office and even being involved in campaigns is just one part of like civic engagement and civic involvement. And so we had the newspaper, you know, I think I do it through the work I do with philanthropy, do it the work we do through our nonprofit foundation. So it's more like an ecosystem approach. Yes, definitely. And I'm excited to dive into all these questions, because like I said in the intro, you're a really great example of someone who influences the political arena while not being directly an elected official yourself. But I want to shift gears a bit and talk about a big piece of your work, which is the Black press. And, and let's talk a bit about the significance of the Black press. I'm curious to know your perspective on the historical significance, but also how the role of the Black press has changed or been elevated post Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and beyond? 
It's interesting. I'm doing some work right now. My doctorate is in English literature with a focus on African-American literature. And I was particularly interested in like 19th century African-American literature. So like really, you know, when you're, you know, you're working on a doctorate, it's, it goes down to this kind of micro level of work you do. And I've been reading just about some of the early Black female publishers. And one in particular, people don't know, she's the first woman to publish a newspaper in the in North America, Mary, Mary Ann Shad. And I say North America because she, even though she was born in the United States, she ended up moving into Canada. And she did a lot of her work was on, in Canada, and it was on abolitionist work, but it was, it was really trying to attract people from America to go to Canada, like where there was true, at that time, true freedom. You know, you had to leave the, the North. But the role, I've mean, just been thinking a lot about the role of the Black press then. It was like, you know, we talk about the public square. It was like the it was like the public place for all of these conversations and all of this information to live. I mean, now it's so fractured, but then it really was the newspaper. And I think when, it, especially when it came to the Black press, you know, the founding of the Black press as kind of abolitionist work too. So the first Black newspaper, Freedom's Journal, was published in New York by some were born free, some were, you know, ex-slaves. But a lot of the work of those early papers was really to dispel a lot of other circulating information about Blacks, like in the mainstream press. It was also a place to kind of uplift the Black community. And it was also a place for like dialogue and conversation about how do we then move out of, you know, a, a system of enslavement and into a free society. And so it played that role. It was really central. And I think now, you know, we've struggled because of the fractured nature of media, because of social media, because of digital, like a lot of the digital transformation work that needs to happen with our press. Um, but I think after the killing of George Floyd and the focus on like Black-led organizations, it kind of elevated Black press again. And it was interesting because we've been doing the work all along. I mean, we're, our, our publication, Black Voice News, next month will celebrate 49 years. So next year will be wow. half a century. Started by students at UC Riverside, right, who did yeah. not feel that the campus paper spoke for them. And then it ended up in the community. And we, you know, as a, as a family, we've been producing it since 1980. But we have other papers like the Amsterdam News, still publishing. The Baltimore Afro-Americans over 100 years old, you know, still publishing. And to kind of watch them now, like try to move into the digital space and what that looks like. Um, but they're still doing the work. Like these are just people who are committed. So even when the money may not have been there, mm -hmm. they were still publishing because it was like their civic duty. And I think you saw that with, especially with ethnic press more so than, you know, kind of other like mainstream press. So it's interesting to see now what's happening. We're getting support in a way that we hadn't before, which is great. And just in some of the cohorts, um, I'm a part of a couple of uh, initiatives, organizational initiatives, to see some of the publishers, you know, still doing that really granular work in their community, but now being able to, to do it with really solid support. It's exciting. It's exciting to see some good, some good work is happening across the country. Good work is happening across the country for sure, but also in this region, thanks to you and your team, 
As a reader of the IE Voice and Black Voice News, your publications and, and the investigative journalism that you all produce, I have to make a point of saying that your executive editor and your team are extraordinary. No one else in this region is covering issues from a justice lens like you all are. First of all, thank you for that. And beyond that, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, generally speaking, and also where you see your work going from here. Thank you. Thank you for the, and I, and I am excited about the team we have. Stephanie Williams, our editor, was just talking about her uh, to someone else as amazing. And this is like her second career. And I, I just really appreciate Stephanie because we throw so much like new technology at her and, and she just is willing to figure it out and learn. You know, she doesn't say, look, Paula, I'm not doing, I'm not going to learn this new, this new platform or new program. And then she's really nurturing a newsroom of emerging journalists. And we, we've just been, we've been so fortunate in the past year to be able to bring, and that's a year and a half, bring on some really talented, mainly young women. It's like a, it's like a, I call it the, the black, the black girl nerd army. We have like just nerdy black girls. So we were able to bring on a data analyst. Alex Reed is able to find the data that Stephanie needs for some of her stories, clean it, dig into it, and then sometimes tell her this is not, you know, um, or Stephanie, this isn't going to deliver what you, what you what you were looking for. Or, you know, she'll end up doing a quick, cool dashboard like she did with the, with the COVID data that she found, Blacks in California, or even some work she did with Black workers. We were really interested in looking at how COVID and the pandemic were impacting Black workers, and she had to kind and go to a lot of different sources to find the data. And then we have Brianna Reeves, who's our new Report for America journalist, um, went to your, uh, she went to London School of Economics. So um, she's, looking, she's looking forward to meeting you um, and talking about that experience, Denise. I can't wait to meet her. Yes. And she's just like, you know, she feels, you know, really empowered by the, the the makeup of the newsroom, being able to work with someone like Stephanie who can help guide and direct. And so we're excited, you know, to get, she just started this month, her first month. Candace Mays came to us a, a little over a year ago. It has a background in education and creative writing, but she's a just been a great project manager and kind of team lead for a lot of the work we're doing. And I'll share that with you, the mapping work that we're and data work that we're trying to do more of. And then we have in the newsroom, we have some students who are from RCC who are working with us regularly. And their, their instructor meets with our team pretty regularly. And then we have a few other community reporters. It's been exciting to start to develop this team. What we want to do more of in the future, and we it's been like a journey for us. We started with an interest in geographic information systems and trying to kind of map some data and then realizing that part of the challenge was we didn't have all the access to the data that we wanted to map and, and even to help kind of uh, support some of the stories that Stephanie was working on and her team was working on. And so we kind of backed into this idea of doing much more data-driven journalism, solutions-driven journalism, and building data hub and the content sharing platform that we can share, not just with Black Voice News in our audience, but with Black press across the state, possibly uh, across the country. And so that's like what we see where, you know, we were last year, we received a Google News Initiative funding to build this hub, $300,000 to create a prototype, which was great. Mm -hmm. And we are receiving a few other uh, grants. There's one I can't, I, even though I know this will, this will air at, after 
after the announcement, but we have another really nice announcement on another grant that we received that's helping us with the technology piece of it. There's been so much funding support for the kind of work we want to do, and we've tried to take advantage of all of it. And our our vision is to build this data unit, doing data and solutions-driven journalism, and, and make it accessible to communities outside of the Inland Empire. That's the vision. I love that vision. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Your work is so comprehensive and innovative and important. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to share that. And I know that your interest in this work and in local journalism, and generally speaking, doing work for the public good has led you to serve in your volunteer time. You serve on the boards of the James Irvine Foundation, American Press Institute, Cal Matters, California Press Foundation, and the California News. Publishers Association, which is an organization uh, in which you were the first African-American elected to be president of that board in 2019. As you and I discuss all the time over our lunch and coffee dates, I'm always amazed at your level of dedication to this board service. What have you learned from serving on these boards? And what would you say to our listeners who might be interested in joining a board but don't know where to start? That's interesting. I actually was in a conversation with someone who wants to diversify his board just this week and uh, doesn't know where to go. And um, there are people who want to serve and there are there's a need for diverse boards for so many reasons. So we have, we we're talking about how to bring those those two together. I'll just start with I am on a lot of boards, actually more than you listed. I'm and I'm chair and I'm chairing and leadership and certain so so I'm chair of the Community Foundation, Inland Empire Community Foundation Board. I think I found that for me, when we look at, I talked about that kind of civic ecosystem, like these organizations, especially in regions um, or in industries. So I do the regional work in, you know, the Inland Empire. And then I have a interest in media and news media. So I serve on quite a few boards there. And I think they help move the industry forward. They're like an important component to that ecosystem. And I see the same thing in a region where you have government, you have private sector, and then you have like the social sector. And that's that social sector is extremely important. And we saw with especially with what happened with COVID and the pandemic, like the gaps that happened with, with government. I like, mean just Things like food delivery, like things that were simple and basic. That's where the CBOs, those community-based organizations really stepped in. And, you know, so it's it's so important to have a strong social sector. And like I said, we saw the real need for it last year. And I think in in a healthy ecosystem, you have all of those things. And that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed my board service. I've seen the um, opportunities to help, you know, shape a community, to help solve big problems in the community. I think that's where like philanthropy. So I'm on the James Irvine Foundation board, like you said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we invest over a million, hundred million dollars annually in the social sector. And, you know, to see what we're able to accomplish as funders is I think different than what I see as a community foundation in that board service, right? So they're all kind of different. Community foundation board is really about how to help build philanthropy within a region. At the same time, they become kind of partners with big philanthropy to get other resources, not just dollars, but other types of resources into a community. And I see them all kind of working together. And even with the media work, you know, Irvine funds some of the efforts to help 
strengthen journalism as a sector. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so to see it, so they're kind of connected in a way <laughs> too. Yeah. Um, but I see that, you know, we're able to like when, jur- when philanthropy, for instance, funds the journalism, the folks who are the, the kind of thinking about long-term, how do we solve the problem in journalism? Philanthropy is able to provide some resources in a place where we couldn't get it from anyone else. No one else, you know, will be will support that. It's kind of watchdogs for government, for instance. You're not going to necessarily get that support from government. You're not going to necessarily get it from the public sector. I mean, or or the um, private sector. But philanthropy can, can fulfill that role. So it's. For me, I see how all of them working together can help transform, change, solve problems. And I get so much joy out of it. I also just kind of like the way boards work. Really, I'm like, I volunteer to be on board development committees because I love the, the work of bringing together individuals, diverse individuals who then become the governing body of an organization. And then what happens with that organization based on who's around the table is just fascinating to me. Absolutely. And one of the reasons so many organizations are trying to figure out how to diversify their boards. Right, right. Definitely. And they do. They do need to diversify their boards. That's so important. You're right. And thank you for that explanation. One of the things that I love most about you is that you are so driven in everything that you do and you're a connector. And I think that just from what you've shared so far, everyone can see that, right? You have your hand in so many different pots, but they all relate and they all are for the goal of making communities better, making the world better, diversifying as much as possible. And you have a, a big focus on equity. And one of the arenas in which you've been great at connecting, as you've talked about a little bit before in terms of GIS and data and and how it shows up in your newsroom. I know that you've done some collaborative work with Esri, which of course is a global GIS software company based in Redlands, California. And you've been instrumental in the Mapping Black California project with them. You've also been featured in a book about women in GIS. Tell us more about this work and how you got interested in GIS. What's so funny is I'm in that first volume. I think they're on volume three now, Women in G. It was so popular. And so Esri has their own press, Esri Press. And they published this book. And I remember being asked to be in the first volume. And I'm like, I haven't, I haven't even really made a map. I admit this. I always admit this. Like I admit this. And every time I speak at it, like a, uh, for a GIS organization, like I'm a big ambassador, I'm a big advocate, but I hadn't made my own map. I met Jack Dangerman several years ago, and it had always head of Esri, founder of Esri, brilliant, genius, humble, wonderful community member. You know, I mean, you're there in Redlands, so you, you know, not just Esri, but Jack and Laura Dangerman are, you know, they think a lot and think deeply about, you know, how to create a thriving community, you know, how we can use their software to do that. So when I met him and I'd already known about Esri, my team, though, got really excited and started using ArcGIS their software to map a few things. So the first one was a, uh, well, we had two that were first two maps. One was of our underground railroad study tours that we take. And that was like an easy, like just mapping of the tour. The software, of course, lended itself to that. But the second one was Stephanie Williams, our editor, had been working on a story idea for the Coastal Commission uh, funded, funded project. And it was on segregated beaches, a history of segregated beaches in California. And so it just, it, really uh, lent itself to this map tour. So my, so our graphics team 
created the map and it was like multimedia, you know, it has like archive photos, the story, and then the map taking you to all of these locations, including Bruce's Beach, which is one that's in the news now, uh, the reparations conversation about how the beach was taken from the family, that land. And now there's a push from, I think, the supervisor's office, as well as, of course, the community to return that land to the family that owned it. And so we had that, that Bruce's Beach was one of the beaches actually on this map. And so we just became really fascinated with the technology and they had just started a platform called Story Maps and Story Mapping. And it's kind of this immersive experience using the software and it's so easy to use. Like our team was teaching themselves and it just got really excited and started talking to Jack about it and just digging in more into like looking at GIS um, as a technology. And Jack and I were talking about how to do more to introduce it to the Black community. So it became more than just about how we used it as a news organization and more like how do we help introduce GIS and the power of it to understand and visualize data for a larger community. And so that's how we created Mapping Black California, actually brought a group together there at Esri, and we just started kind of talking through it. And what we've done since then is we have two nonprofits that work with Black youth, one in particular, Ignite Leadership Academy, uh, led by Shirley Coates, Mm -hmm. where they, they teach middle school girls, Black girls, GIS as a part of a Saturday Academy, Leadership Academy. And we've had over, well over 100 now girls go through the program. We had another one C3 coding camp that incorporated. Esri was just wonderful. They they gave us computers for the students. They gave some of their expertise in, in developing the kind of training modules. And so that was probably about 300 kids by now have gone through those programs, but it's just kind of starting to introduce it. We're starting to have some folks graduating from college now and going into the field, one in particular uh, with Kennedy Wilson, um, <laughs> who, who um, just graduated from University of Redlands, yeah. with her, yeah, master's in GIS. And she's, of course, my wonderful niece, but she's been a teacher now for Ignite Leadership Academy. And so the girls are seeing someone like she had to learn how to code. She's learning GIS. And now she's working for a consulting firms doing some work on redistricting. But it, that was the goal. It was like how not just for us to use it in our reporting, but how do we broaden that? How do we help build? We're looking at some geospatial pathways work with some of the community colleges. We're helping City of San Bernardino build a geo hub that's bringing together Cal State, San Bernardino, CBOs like uh, organization tables like just San Bernardino and Uplift San Bernardino and looking at how do we create this kind of hub where data can live that all of the community can benefit from. I just, I loved Esri's technology. So that's how it all started. And now with the data work we're doing, the data hub, we're looking at how do we visualize things using our GIS. They're not just their maps, but their dashboards are great. Yeah. And, and then we're interested in the whole, like in the racial equity like looking at things with a racial equity lens too and helping use their expertise. They have an infinity group called North Star and it's just been terrific to kind of have access to those folks who think about it all the time and it can help inform, inform our work as well. Yeah, this is incredible work. And you just outlined a lot of amazing work that you're uh, doing in this region in particular. And as someone who grew up here in inland Southern California, and you know this region so well, I'm curious to see if there are other initiatives that you would like to see come to fruition here. 
You know, I think we're still, when it comes to the regional economy, you know, there we all know about the overabundance of warehouses. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and we know that there are some challenges with educational attainment. We need better graduation rates. I mean, and of course, it depends on the city. When you talk this region, you're talking from very affluent communities to, to very, you know, impoverished, um, under-resourced communities. So I know there's a diversity, but I think that's one of the places that we need to spend more time is on how do we look at ourselves regionally. And and there are, there are a few big projects that are happening, like IEGO which, you know, as Irvine's funded, the Community Foundation is kind of incubated and growing. It's a kind of a regional, inclusive economic table in the region. So there's there's work that's being done. You know, we still, when it comes to philanthropy, are not attracting the kinds of philanthropic dollars that, you know, San Francisco and Los Angeles attract in terms of outside philanthropic funding. And I think there's there's enough people talking about it and there's enough, there's some work being done with some of the, in the CBO space, with some organizations that I'm I'm hopeful, like that we'll see some change soon. I, I think we're, we're, we're talking about it more in a unified voice in a way we haven't before for the most part. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's just so much, there, you know, there's cities that need, you know, there's some work being done in San Bernardino. When you look at San Bernardino County of San Bernardino and the work that needs to be done and bring up the city of San Bernardino, there's some initiatives there. Like I mentioned, Uplift San Bernardino and Just San Bernardino, like two of those kind of tables that have developed. There's some work that's happening with Cal State San Bernardino and like cyber, um, cybersecurity apprenticeships and pathways. It's, I think, getting the attention of folks outside, definitely getting the attention of folks outside the region. That's, you know, kind of the counter to the logistics you know, conversation. It's like, how do we get, for me, it's like, how do we get more Esseries in the region, right? How do we get, how do we nurture and grow? I know there's a, there's a clean tech park um, with, because we have CARB, we were able to attract, you know, once again, it was a collective effort to get the California Air Resources Board here to Riverside and what opportunities that presents for not just the city of Riverside, but, you know, the entire inland region, you know, so there's, there are things that are happening, but I think they're all around, like definitely the economy, and the region. And then philanthropy, of course, are the two spaces that I'm very involved in. Yeah, there's, you know, we're, 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 we're a scrappy region. <laughs> I see, you know, we're, we're tough. And I, what I like that I see now is that we're trying to work together and speak in a much more unified voice. Yeah, we are a scrappy and tough region, (laughs) but we're certainly so lucky to have you and your leadership. And also at UC Riverside, we're lucky to have such a strong connection to you. As you outlined earlier, Black Voice News has a a strong tie to UCR, but you yourself are are an alumna of UC Riverside as well as an adjunct faculty member currently. You've also been a speaker at two of our UCR Persist conferences in the last few years, and we deeply appreciate that. I'd love to hear more about the class you teach for UCR and also what it means to you to still be so connected to your alma mater. Yeah, you know, I went to Cal State San Bernardino undergrad, so I, you know, I still rep in Cal State Coyotes, but, you know, two degrees from UCR. And then my husband is, for the next at least couple of weeks, he'll be, you know, chair of the, the theater, film, and digital production department, which is where I teach my class, actually is housed in his, in his department. And I was asked to teach this course 
or creatives. So these are mainly filmmakers, musicians are in, included in that, writers. And when I say filmmakers, it's all aspects from production, writing, design, cinematography, editors. They're all uh, students who are interested in the filmmaking industry. And the class was really designed at first to kind of introduce them to out the outside, uh, outside the walls of the university into the community. So part of it is designed for me to just bring in folks to speak to them that, that are in the arts or media. And when I started teaching, I was the first one to teach the class. I realized pretty quickly, like what I had envisioned at first was not going to work. So I actually changed the first time I taught this. And I've been teaching this now for like five years. First time I taught it, I came back to the second class and I had a different syllabus and a different book for them. It was like, I'm just changing the whole class. One of the things I realized is that they needed more like professional development. Like how do you when you graduate, because these are all seniors and juniors, how do you maneuver in, in into a career? And what does that look like? And so we spend a lot of time like talking about opportunities they have as students to do internships. I actually kind of make them go through the process of getting an internship, introduce them, to have them interview someone in the field that they're interested in. Because the other thing is, like, it's a journey, you know, like you you think you know what you want to do in college and then you get into the real world and you're like, maybe that's not what I want to do. So I have them interview someone in the field that they're interested in. And it does two things. It helps them kind of understand what that what what that career is like, but then it also gives them a connection to someone, even if they choose to not go into that field, someone in the industry. And students have been offered, do, just through that exercise, have been offered internships. You know, they, so it's been great. It's been really great. But it's a course that they all really appreciate because it's something they didn't have in their other classes. You know, talking about how do you, like what their social media should look like, like which they shouldn't, shouldn't have on their social media, how to write a letter of interest, what their resume should look like like what their LinkedIn, like they all have to create a LinkedIn page. So my students, have, some of them have gotten into graduate school, like Chapman Film School. Some of them have gotten, you know, careers in the uh, positions in the industry. And some of them have, you know, gone on to other graduate programs. It's been really, really exciting. Um, and I call them my kids every time they're, like I see, you know, that they they uh, had some success. A couple of them are graduating from Chapman uh, this year. And I'm just like, I helped with, you know. <laughs> and then I have some of them now come back and talk talk to the their uh, to my current classes but it's been great for me to stay connected to the community um to the to the university to connect students to the community and then it's also a kind of a, a way of keeping alumni connected too so one of the things that has happened is I've talked to former students and had them speak to the class you know for them to see what's happening at UCR, for them to feel connected to UCR. And I think if there's an opportunity later on, you know, down the line for them to help, you know, become co contributors to the campus and supporters of the campus. It, it's really an opportunity to continue to develop those ties. And it's been just, it's just been wonderful. It's last year, well, actually, I teach it every winter. I had um, one student who now works for Nike. He's a storyteller for Nike basically in their comms shop. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how he got, and there's one of my students who wanted the same type of career. So he interviewed him for his paper and he's like, you know, and then, and then um, the former UCR student said, Hey, let me, I'll tell you how, like, I'm going to help you guide you through the process because it's my, my student is getting ready to graduate. So I see it working. I, I get so excited. I love staying connected to UCR because I think it's, you know, it's one of the important institutional assets we have in this region. You know, I mean, for so many reasons. I mean, look at Persist, for instance, like, you know, the type of speakers that you have come to campus 
and what that is able and how that benefits not just campus, but, you know, of course, the students who are there bringing together students and people like me in the community. That's been always great. And I've made some great connections just from your conference. Well, I appreciate that. And as you know, I always tell you, I'm just trying to be like you because oh. <laughs> you're you're the most brilliant connector that I know, as is evidenced by this interview and so much more. But yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And actually, everything that you've just shared is, is a perfect lead in to our last question, which is if you could give one piece of advice to our listeners, especially those college students thinking about getting involved in the political arena, again, political arena being broad, right? The work that you do well, not in elected office, has arguably even more of an impact, right, in the political arena. So what, what would that piece of advice be to them if they want to get involved? I think first thing as a journey, like, don't think you're going to figure it out, you know, like you're going to be in the right place right away. For me, it was really, you know, starting as a high school student working with Congressman George Brown, a lot of people, you know, know Congressman George Brown, who rep- at the time represented both San Bernardino and Riverside because it's such a small, you know, are, are, are those two cities, it was, you know, the population was so much smaller than it is now, was how I just kind of, I got started um, in terms of like working in that directly in the political arena. But then like just my, as my interest and as I grew and my interest grew, taking the experience there and shifting to media work and then shifting to philanthropy while staying. I, you know, I kind of stay in all the sectors now, but I, you know, a place to start is just right close to you. Like, what do you care about? It may be volunteering at a nonprofit in your, you know, in your region. It may be volunteering at your church, even, you know, you know, some people start there. I was always a starter of things. So if I saw that there was something missing, you know, when I was in, I would say started in middle school and, and in college, and I used to go into college. If I thought something was missing, I was like, well, I'll just start it and try to bring people together who care about it too. And I think that's one thing to do too. If it's something that, you know, if there's something that you think should be happening that isn't, you know, like Shirley saying, there's a problem with, there's a problem happening with middle school Black girls in particular. They were, they were, they were getting into more trouble on campuses. And so she, and their, their test scores were lower. She was just looking at certain things. And she said, well, I'm going to start this Ignite Leadership Academy. Like that's, you know, she just started. And then as she's talking to people like me, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And then, you know, I'm, I'm one of her funders. I support her work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see that. I've seen that again and again with people who like, you know, human trafficking, there's like, a, there's like a gap there. So someone starts an organization. Those are places where you can start. Look around you. If there's someone doing the thing that's of interest to you, ask if you can volunteer. If there's no one doing it, start something and you can start small. You know, that's the other problem. Sometimes people think they need to, you know, needs to be, you know, a scaled up thing. No, it could just be small. It could be in your community. It could be in your neighborhood, but just start there and think of it as a journey and grow from there. Cause I think that's the other thing that stops people is they think they have to figure it all out before mm-hmm. they start. And if I, if I figured things out before I started, I wouldn't be doing anything. <laughs> I, yes. That, that's, our, that's our joke with our team. We're building the plane while we're flying it and we need to be okay with it. Absolutely. And you make it work and you do it brilliantly. And, you know, this conversation I knew was going to be informative and powerful and inspiring. And it was all of that and so much more. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Persist podcast with us. Thank you, Denise. And thanks for all you're doing with Persist. Thank you, my friend. Take care. The Persist podcast is hosted by me, Denise Davis, director of the UCR Women's Resource Center. 
and is produced by Rosa Tejeda and the staff in the UCR Women's Resource Center. Check out our Instagram pages for links to more episodes at UCRWRC and at UCR Persist. If you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, please email us at wrc at ucr.edu. We hope that this podcast inspires you and those around you to get involved in the political arena because we know that who is at the table absolutely matters. Finally, if you have any ideas for who a future guest should be on the podcast, feel free to reach out and let us know.